0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B.
1: Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm your host, Norman B. In the show today, two exceptional books and two engaging guests. So make sure you don't miss a moment. Coming up later, a conversation about the language revolution that made China modern with Professor Jing Su, author of Kingdom of Characters. First, the book is titled The Urge, Our History of Addiction. The author, Carl Eric Fischer. Carl, welcome to Life Elsewhere.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I've got to tell you, first of all, that one big takeaway for me uh, from your book is that just when I thought that we, as a, as a society, I guess, had sort of got to understand a little more about addiction and maybe we we're a little bit more understanding of the, the whys and wherefores, from your book, I think we're far from that.
2: Would you agree? I do think we have a long way to go. And that's part of the reason why I felt I should write the book is to share my experience and what I've learned about the ways that we've responded to addiction over the ages, both effective and ineffective, because we live with some of those uh, negative legacies today, in particular, crushing, crushing stigma and blame and just general division that uh, keeps us from facing the reality of addiction in our lives.
1: Why do you think that is, Carl? It seems to me that we almost deliberately have an aversion as a society to to deal with addiction and at the same time, and this is what you point out in your book, we really want to blame somebody
2: else the whole time. Yes, absolutely. A really important point that uh, addiction is a part of us, and as far back as I could look in the history... I saw drug epidemics going back 500 years and I saw people who were struggling with addiction. And I think people don't like suffering. That's normal. That's human. And at the same time, somehow natural and human impulse to try to end that suffering or stamp out that suffering has caused incalculable harm over and over again, just getting a little more specific, trying to stamp out addiction, say, look for a, a cure whether that's at an individual level through sometimes profiteering and hucksterism, sometimes at a social level, if it's this uh, myth or this illusion that we have that we could stamp out drug use uh, almost always causes more, more harm than, than benefit.
1: Another takeaway from your book is you, you... Give us a history, but you also talk about yourself, and I want to get to that in a moment. But something else, which I think is very important, another takeaway is the is the understanding of what addiction is, and this is where I think things get very complicated. But you lay it out for us in your book. Can you, for my listeners, just give a a little overview of what of what addiction actually is?
2: Mm. Addiction. Let me put it this way: I think I think one of the best ways of understanding addiction is to look deeply at the term and how it came to us. So uh when the word first entered the English language it was actually quite broad and quite rich and at that time it meant a powerful devotion we could go farther than that and in medicine and philosophy people have come up with more specific definitions but i think that's a wonderful definition in other words addiction wasn't a status it wasn't a thing that happened to you it wasn't some sort of extreme condition neatly demarcated from the rest of human life it was an action it was a willing devotion that paradoxically took away your will that impaired someone's free choice and to me that opens up some of the nuance that we sometimes miss when for perfectly compassionate reasons sometimes people try to dichotomize addiction as if there's free choice over here on one end of the spectrum and there's total compulsion like hijacking on the other and in reality there's a vast open space in between yes
1: You've probably heard the phrase many times, a functioning addict or a functioning alcoholic or a function, functioning heroin use or whatever. But the functioning part is what I want to focus on. I've heard this over the years, and I've always wondered, from a medical point of view, what what really does that mean,
2: a functioning addict? Mm. Uh, It's a slippery term and people could mean different things. by it. So I (laughs) think it's, it's good that you're asking. And if somebody has a a curiosity, even if they're listening right now and wondering like, oh, am I a functional person with addiction? Then uh, it's important to think about what we mean by functioning, because for me, the best yardstick for the problems of addiction is not whether or not somebody is using or how much they're using, but it's the actual harms to how are they actually doing in their lives? what are the harms they're experiencing and what are the harms that they're causing and how are they functioning in terms of moving toward meaning and purpose in their life. And we've had moments in history where people uh, I think have been more awake to that notion of addiction, that um, the real measure of addiction was that, that very human impact on lives, but because of the way that drug policy is often wound up in racist and oppressive and xenophobic policies, or even more generally just policies that seek to divide us into like good drugs, bad drugs, good users, bad users. Uh, sometimes drug policy and even drug treatment is driven by more of a desire to control someone's use and to make the yardstick are uh, they using the way we want them to use.
1: Carl, should we separate addiction to drugs and alcohol from addictions to, say, pornography or gambling or whatever, eating? Is there a separation that should be in place?
2: No, I don't think so. And in fact, there were moments in time when uh, physicians, say, for example, at the close of the 19th century, recognized more of a diversity to addiction, going along Mm -hmm. with those earlier understandings of the word that we were just talking about. That yeah. uh there wasn't something special about the substance. And I think we've lost sight of this too, that um we put too much power in the drugs because we we villainize the drugs so much. Yes. It's almost as if the drugs become these malevolent forces with their own special agency. And um that's dangerous. It misses out on the human factors and it misses out on all the ways that culture and identity and belief about the self play into uh addictive behavior so no i don't i don't think that that's a there's a really meaningful distinction between substance addiction and other types of addiction like sex gambling pornography whatever else yes Uh, the real the real measure is what is the harm and what is it actually doing for the person
1: yes thank you for explaining that i think it's really important to, to make that clear my guest is carl eric fisher the book is titled the urge our history of addiction you yourself I understand. Had an addiction, have an addiction, you're a recovering addict. Was that difficult for you to write about yourself?
2: Well, yes and no. Uh yes, in the sense that uh I had to really go back and inhabit painful episodes in my life and really try to bring myself back to a sense of what it felt like what was going on inside of me because it wasn't always apparent. I think one of the, one of the problems with addiction is in the war of the divided self that um, one might not even be fully conscious of uh, the suffering that is, is occurring or that you're seeking to quell through addictive behaviors or otherwise. But it it wasn't difficult in the sense that I, I really felt it necessary. I felt it was necessary to tell the story honestly in the sense that Addiction is deeply personal, and this is not meant to be the definitive work on addiction. No. It's my story of addiction yes. and how I came to understand it. But also just because uh, we still suffer under so much stigma and misinformation about addiction that uh, I thought there would be value in in putting out putting out my story and and linking it to these investigations I've done.
1: Yes, and it it works very well. I'm glad that you did. And and thank you so much for putting it into your book and the way you've laid your book out. You used the word just a little while ago that I want to pick up on, and you you talk about this in your book, and that's villainize. And we still live in a society where certain drugs are looked down upon by other drug users. And I've, I've seen this, and I'm sure you have, and my listeners have over the years. You know, somebody that smokes Enormous amounts of, of marijuana probably has not a very high opinion of somebody that is addicted to heroin, for instance, and they kind of villainize the heroin addict, but don't consider their own addiction to be that harmful. And, I, and I, you, I've heard this over and over again. Can you talk about that, about the distinctions, about how we, 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 in one hand, we sort of glamorize some drugs and in others, it's like, oh, this is so awful. This is so terrible.
2: Mm, yeah. It's such a consistent historical theme that people have sought over and over again to divide up people by good drugs and bad drugs. Yeah, And certain types of drugs are associated with the supposedly right sort of users and the wrong sorts of users. And often that's in service of a deeper narrative about, yes. you know, for example, Chinese immigrants and xenophobia and opium in the 19th century, or about Black Americans and cocaine. In the early 20th century and uh wh- what those stories do is they obscure the actual uh costs and benefits of these substances uh it's it's not just that we use ideas about drugs and ideas about addiction as a weapon that's absolutely the case and it's yeah. we've committed tremendous injustices on those grounds uh by using the so-called war on drugs as a front for uh, as political cover For basically a war on the urban poor and communities of color. But the thing that people are less likely to notice about that is that the the harms rebound to hurt everyone over and over again in the history of addiction because of that focus on supposedly bad drugs. we've, We've missed the harms of supposedly good drugs. We missed it, say, for example, in the 1920s with stimulants when they were first getting widely manufactured. And in a way, the the crack epidemic in the 1980s and 90s was a setup for uh, our current opioid overdose epidemic.
1: That's the part of your book that I I find so fascinating. You're talking about the history. And there's, there's something else which I want to talk about from, a I guess, from a personal point of view. And I think this will touch with a lot of people when you've been in a relationship with somebody who is going back to that functioning situation where somebody is a functioning addict forget what the drug or alcohol is but you know that they have an issue you know that they have a problem but you support them and you kind of but you kind of try to sort of let them live their life but you know at the same time you wish they weren't an addict That has to be a fairly common problem. Am I right?
2: It is. And it still is so widely stigmatized that um, people hide addiction within their families or otherwise feel uncomfortable about talking about it and seeking help. And uh, it was as recently as the late 1970s when um, former first lady Betty Ford, for example, uh, went public with her struggles with addiction. Um, that even at that time and still to this day there was so much stigma associated with the condition that it was huge huge news we lose sight of it today but it's totally captivating in the national news a major major episode in the history of addiction and it plays on exactly that theme how do you help somebody that you love when they are struggling with uh, addiction or other sorts of mental health challenges and it's not always clear and it you know it's such a individualized problem that I hesitate to even try to come up with some sort of pat answer or guidance aside from saying that uh, there is a lot of wisdom there. And there are a lot of folks and more and more research every day about how to help someone in those situations. And even just basically at the level of setting healthy boundaries and knowing, knowing what is helpful versus what might be counterproductive. I think the real danger again is the stigma And the the drive sometimes to hide and to do it all alone.
1: Something that you talk about in your book, and we've already touched on it in this conversation, is the difference in social standing and economic situations. I've always wondered, Carl, how is it possible people can afford to have an addiction that costs so much money i've never i've never understood that and that's something which i guess because i've i've not been addicted to to any drugs um, i like a glass of wine every so often but i've always sort of thought to myself i just wonder about the money side of it the economics of it and when somebody realizes that they have a problem they have they are an a- addict so it's two different questions but they're kind of linked together because to be an addict you've got to be able to afford it
2: it's a it's a terrifying and um the almost unreasonable example i think you know when you talk about money it makes me think about just the the deeper breakdown of reason that happens in addiction i mean the short answer to your question is people do what they need to if they're in the throes of a true addiction and people will deal or steal or uh, in many cases do what it takes, especially when they don't have access to a regulated and safe supply. Like I, I was lucky in a way that I was addicted to alcohol and to Adderall because yeah. especially yes. by virtue of my social position, I, I could still know that I was getting a safe supply. And nowadays, in part because of our overly prohibitionist crackdowns on uh, opiates, now our, our drug supply is totally p- polluted with fentanyl. And it's like a, it's like playing Russian roulette is sometimes somebody who's using street heroin doesn't know what they're getting. You know, you, you're wondering about um, the, the, not just the economics I'm hearing you say, but also the sort of the reason defying characteristic of addiction, like how could it be that somebody gets so far and not realize that they have a problem. And I can just say my own experience was that I knew, I knew, but it was also a case of the divided self where there was a part of me saying, hey this is a problem and struggling to change but also coping with denial and rationalization and all sorts of ways that i i hid that problem from myself
1: let's touch on alcohol for a moment because it's widely
2: available
1: in most states in this country there are a couple where it's a little bit more difficult to to, to get hold of but not that difficult and throughout the the world well, certainly the western world and throughout the world alcohol is is so widely available it's it, but we still have a very we have a very strange attitude towards alcohol, don't we? It's almost like we've got a a bipolar attitude towards it. We we don't mind having a drink ourselves, but we do look down on somebody with a bottle of whatever it's called in a paper bag on the street. This is where that sort of discrimination between us and them comes in, which is so apparent with alcohol, even I think so, even more so than than cocaine or heroin or or, or whatever talk to me about alcohol carl
2: yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head that um within the example of alcohol which is such a powerfully color culturally relevant substance it's a drug it's not not a drug um we see so many of the different social and cultural responses to addiction refracted and we've swung in pendular fashion between these massive extremes in our treatment of alcohol it was it was regarded as demon rum in the yes. early 19th century with massive efforts to eradicate its use and then it was uh, the market was forced open and liberalized and nowadays i think most scholars would agree that uh, we're actually quite permissive about alcohol we can look to our uh, our neighbors in Europe and uh, see that they, they're not prohibitionist and they're not trying to stamp out alcohol, but they're a little more reasonable about taxes and about distribution in a way that it can minimize at least a little bit the harms of of alcohol that we see so widespread. Again, I think what this brings up is this notion of good drugs and bad drugs. Even just within that one drug, we see it become a good drug, we see it become a bad drug. And what that does is it obscures an honest and true accounting with um, what the actual benefits and costs are. Because there are benefits to alcohol too. Uh, People use drugs for reasons, and some people use it in a non-harmful way. So uh, it, it doesn't help us when we swing between these poles of a total prohibition versus total laissez-faire, wide-open deregulation?
1: I've been around the entertainment industry for for many, many years now. and I, So I've run across people that, for want of a better word, I think they glamorize their addictions. And I can think of you know, some major stars and not-so-major stars whose addictions to alcohol or to drugs they've used as kind of part of their of their PR campaign, any thoughts on that?
2: It, again, one of these really fascinating historical <laughs> examples yeah. because it goes back to—I uh, uh, mean, it goes back as far as you look. But one of the yes. key examples is the Romantic era uh, in the early 19th century, when a lot of British literary society became enamored of opium. Yeah, it, it is—it's hilarious actually because opium. <laughs> there's evidence of opium being a native plant to Europe, but at yeah. that time. Uh, it was regarded as this mysterious product from the Orient and uh, people really threw themselves into opium and and in various forms. And ever since then, in in different iterations, we see this glamorization of, and romantic use of luxurious use, the way it was called back then. And we see that in, in Baudelaire or and uh, Picasso in the the, uh, early 20th century. And, uh, William Burroughs, who I spend a lot of time on in the book and yes. the beats in general. Yes. And I think what those examples show is that addiction is not just a brain being taken over by a bad substance. It also has to do with identity and how we think of ourselves. And sometimes for outsiders and outcasts and people who have real concerns about society, they can take up even very harmful patterns of drug use as a sort of badge of revolution against what they see as the problems of society. And I'm not saying that's not harmful, uh, but we have to appreciate their, their motivations and where that comes from if we're, if we're going to fully understand and respond to those types of situations.
1: Carl Eric Fisher is my guest. His book is The Urge, Our History of Addiction. It's it's a really terrific read. It's it's history and it's a personal account, and it delves it delves into things which it's it's it made me think about about my life and about the people I know and and what's going on around me. One thing that you touch on in the book, and I think it's and and we've sort of mentioned it briefly, but is racism. And, and it's not just this country, is it? it, it this, this is something, again, goes back into history. But let's just talk about where things are in America in 2022. We're in a bad state, aren't we, as regards how we deal with how race becomes one part of, of, the, of, the, of the story of addiction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the opioid overdose epidemic right now is commonly portrayed as a white problem. Yes. And I think that is one of the most insidious and misguided uh, elements of the, the our current struggles with addiction, uh, because it, it it hurts the communities of color that have consistently and repeatedly had to deal with addiction in their communities. Uh, it's not as if uh, black and brown communities didn't have problems with opioids. In fact, they've been a continuous problem uh, since the 1950s in some form. Uh, but yet another example of how racism blinds us to the true scope of the epidemic, because part of that white entitlement story about opioids today presents people as if they were suddenly infected by a bad drug company that came along. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, by virtue of just the bad marketing and being exposed to too strong drugs, they, they got unwittingly addicted. And there is some truth to that, that there was really concerted manipulation in pharmaceutical advertising and the way that opioids were promoted. But that, that simple narrative, that single cause narrative of uh, a sort of like drug as an infectious agent misses out the problems that were affecting uh, white communities and black communities something called deaths of despair commonly nowadays where uh it's not just about a bad drug it's about people experiencing meaninglessness and purposelessness and uh coping with inequality and um the the types of things that are covered in white communities like uh erosion of union membership or uh other forms of social breakdown and lack of access to consistent meaningful jobs that stuff was all going on in in black communities and urban communities forever (laughs) forever i mean choose choose your time um so you know there's an expression in addiction advocacy that uh what affects one of us affects all of us i really think that's true and if there's any hopeful side of this conversation. It's that the real human challenges of addiction give us an opportunity to really center ourselves in what's happening today and how do we save lives today? And I've seen, and other people have seen uh, that despite the tremendous political polarization and all the other sort of ideological Mm. divisions that haunt us today in the States, uh, you get these surprising connections in addiction Mm. advocacy because People aren't worried about this or that idea. They're just worried about how do we save lives today? So well put. Thank you for saying that. Two phrases, I guess, or two
1: questions sort of joining together here. And one is a phrase that is banded about so much today, big pharma. Hold that thought for a moment. And then the medical profession. And I'm just wondering, putting those two together, how much we should, I'm not going to say directly blame, but Ask the medical profession to step up and for big pharma to do the same thing. And when I say step up, I mean step up to help counteract the issues that we have in this country specifically with addiction.
2: Step up is a great phrase because the American medical field in many ways abdicated its responsibility to take care of addiction in decades past Mm. to the point that, um, there was essentially no treatment, even for you know, wealthy and socially connected people in the 20s, 30s, 40s. I, yeah. One of the early um, participants in Alcoholics Anonymous, Marty Mann, uh, who I profiled at length in the book, is mm-hmm. a great example of this. She had a problem with, um, uh, with alcohol couldn't find psychiatrists to treat her and just by pure luck managed to find her way to Alcoholics Anonymous before it was even before the book was even published. Uh, It was sort of in draft form when it made its way to her. And, and that, that occurred across the whole spectrum, uh, not just uh, treating alcohol, but also treating other drugs. And um, uh, you know, there, there are tremendous strides being made daily and yearly. And we've had an American society of addiction medicine and other, medical organizations that have been working tirelessly to treat addiction in a useful way. Uh, But we do have more to go and we have more to go in terms of mainstreaming addiction care with the rest of medicine. Because to this day, it's sort of like a separate thing. And even in my own psychiatry program, the things were sort of subdivided general medical, general psychiatric, and then addiction was over down the street. And I also want to say that it's more than medicine. You know, medicine can do a lot to save a lot of lives. I also don't think that medicine is going to save us. It's just that medicine could be doing more to be saving more lives.
1: Generalization. We 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 tend to, and I think as humans, we we can't help to do this. It's you know, newspaper editors have to have headlines. So we, we sort of narrow things down to the to the sound bites and the headlines and and in doing so we generalize. We generalize so much about pretty much everything in our lives. Specifically in addiction, I think we tend to generalize far too much. I think it's something which it's not all the same. And your book really points that out. It's, it's just not all the same. Yet at the same time, there's no bad drug and there's no good drug, as you say. So just give me your thought, Carl, about generalization, about addiction,
2: yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for the thoughtful read, because I really think that you've hit the nail on the head here, that one of the central paradoxes I wrestled with was that addiction is real and powerful and distinct. It's a it's a tremendous problem that people throughout the ages have found community and solace in banding together and working together. And there's a shared identification there that is really powerful and useful and that I have personally experienced in all of the people who have held me up in uh, mutual help recovery. Mm, mm. And at the same time, uh, it is also contiguous with the rest of human suffering. And so what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that like we're all addicted in the same way? No, I don't, I certainly don't think so. Uh, Does it mean that everyone uh, is a person with addiction? No, I don't think so. I don't, I think that all we can do is to say that it's, it's, often misleading to generalize that, uh, people come to addiction from all sorts of different causes and conditions and people recover from addiction in all of these tremendously varied pathways. And, uh, we, we need to respect that diversity and treat it as a call for, for nuance and exploration and curiosity rather than, um, uh, you know, getting back to the practical and the policy end of things like treating things in a one size fits all framework. Cause we've done that for too long. Yes. That's one of the ways that we're falling short still today.
1: Carl, it's a very serious book in 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 so many respects. But I have to say, you've made it. If it if it can be enjoyable talking about addiction, you've made it readable and and enjoyable. And I really thank you for that. I've got to ask you one last tiny little question, and that is about the illustration on the cover. It shows a, a lady in in uh, in Greek style, Greek pottery style, um, in repose. She looks like she's in the throes of some kind of blissful state just anything you can tell me about that how that came to be that particular illustration
2: i'm blessed that penguin press uh got a a tremendous cover artist it wasn't my idea that's it i i I think that um uh the cover artist really came up with a a beautiful concept that was suggestive of the um the the powerful historical resonances of the book but also yes. it speaks to something universal that people can look at that figure you know with their hand on their head uh suffering with a cup in their hand yes. and say oh you know that's a human being and that's not yes. that's not fundamentally different than the human beings in my life or the way that i have struggled as a human being
1: it has been a delight talking to you i wish you all success with your book uh, the book again the title the urge our history of addiction. I've been talking to the author, Carl Eric Fisher. Carl, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere.
2: Thank you so much, Norman. It's been a true joy and I really appreciate it.
1: This is Life Elsewhere. To learn more about the books we feature, pop on over to lifeelsewhere.co. All the links and info are there. Next, Jing Su will join me to talk about her fascinating book, Kingdom of Characters, the language revolution that made China modern.
0: You are listening to Life Elsewhere with Norman B.
1: The book is titled Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. The author, Jing Su. Jing, welcome to Life Elsewhere.
3: Thank you for having me, Norman.
1: First of all, I've got to tell you this. I did think when, I, when, when this book was sent to me uh, and your publicity people sent it, I, I looked at the cover and I thought, oh, this looks like it might be daunting. And I thought, oh, is it going to be a hard slog? And it's certainly not. It is possibly one of the most informative and enjoyable books I've read for a long time. I was just captivated by your book. It really is a fabulous read.
3: Thank you so much for saying that, Norman. I have to say, to, to make what otherwise would be a very dry subject, uh, come to life and be enjoyable was was ninety percent of the work.
1: <laughs> yes, and I, I I went as far as telling my producer after finishing your book. I said, "Gosh, if only I could speak Chinese. I think I'm going to see if I can get lessons to learn Chinese because wouldn't that be great? Then I'd then I'd understand even more." There's you just so can. <laughs> yes, yes, I can, and I'm going to. There's so much to unwrap in the book. I want to start with something that caught my attention on page 10 of your book, and I'm just gonna read it if you don't mind. Of course. So this is from Kingdom of Characters. If China wanted to level the playing field to learn the secrets of the West's wealth and power, then language was the key to accessing that knowledge. The Chinese script was the gateway through which translations and the imported new knowledge must pass. I love that because it really sort of, it explains so much about what you tell us. Now, after reading that, I want you to tell my listeners just a little bit about the whys and wherefores of your book, but don't give too much away.
3: Okay, well, thank you for that. And I think that's a great image is what a narrow straight Chinese Chinese character system had to navigate through in the 20th century. And there were three things I really want to do with this book. First, I wanted to write a book about how China came to be the global power that it is today. Um, Second, to show how the driving force behind this, this modernization was I argue its language, which I consider China's first and great wall, last first and last great wall. And third, I want to tell the story not through governments or, you know, policymakers, but really the individuals, right, the Chinese people, what I call the second and third stringers of history, because they were not big revolutionaries, they were not martyrs, but how each of them decided that this was greater than themselves and devoted themselves to pushing the Chinese script revolution forward with their technological innovation.
1: Well, I think that you've done everything that you just told us there so very well. You've laid it out very carefully. You've given us a history story. You've given us a political story, a national story. Uh, you've given us so much, and it all weaves together. You begin the book by telling us about, uh, and again, I'm going to ho- hopefully pronounce the name right, Wang Xiao. Wang Zhao, close enough. Okay. Wang, so so you, you say it for me, please. Wang Wang Zhao. Wang Zhao. Okay, Wang Zhao. So the G, okay, that's Wang Zhao. Okay. So you tell us about Wang Zhao. Can you, for my listeners again, could you just give your uh, little overview of uh, Wang Zhao?
3: So Wang Zhao, the the character in the opening chapter, he was um, from the late 19th century. He was a Mandarin. But at this time in 1900, where the book begins, he was a wanted fugitive. Yes. He was in Japan, exiled, and wanted for trying to overthrow the last Manchu rule. But, you know, he could have lived out his life perfectly nice and easily in Japan, but there was something inside that he could not ignore, which was he wanted to bring back a Mandarin alphabet that would phoneticize Chinese in a wholly new way that he think would teach every Chinese how to speak and write. And literacy was very low at that point.
1: Yes. Yes, so that's something I really focus in on because back then, and for, and for centuries, it was just the elite. It was the highly educated that, that wrote and read Chinese. It was it was something that the average peasant, the average person, didn't have any chance to do. Or, or did they? How how did that work?
3: Now, China was largely an agricultural society until well into the mid-20th century. And that means it's mostly peasants and farmers. And most of them were illiterate. That is very true. And literacy and the power of the word was really concentrated in the hands of the elite. But then the problem came when you try to modernize, right? The more educated your people are, the more likely it is and more easy it is that you can modernize and build yourself the kind of infrastructure you need. Right. So people are the ultimate human capital, essentially, for late 19th century. So it came to them that the first thing they had to do was to raise the literacy level of this entire population. Right. And to do that, you basically have to look at Chinese language in a very different way. It can't just be the distinction and privilege of the learned right? Which means that you can't just treat it as something you can spend decades refining and take pleasure in, you know, as cultural capital. You really had to make it quicker, faster to access. It has to be a tool that will enable people to do things as opposed to an end in itself.
1: Yes. You know, and I'm going to go off on slight tangent. I hope you don't mind. As I'm reading your book, I kept thinking about our world today, and I was thinking about our world right here in the United States, and I was thinking about how language is so important, but how it's misinterpreted and misused. I'm, I'm thinking of fake news, how we now understand what fake news means, or or do we? And I'm, then I'm sort of going back to what you're writing about in the book, how people got their information by stories things were passed on word to mouth mouth Uh, people didn't actually read Uh, the the poor people the peasants the farm people didn't didn't actually read it was the elite so it's wonderful how you describe how things changed let's talk about that about how things did change how how it came to be that now these days everybody in china i presume can read and write
3: Yes, literacy is a high 90s percentile, and it is a difference in a sense that we're also in a very interconnected world. So when you talk about fake news, like it's also dependent on the technology of our day, which is social media. Right. Yes. Back then, information traveled much slower. And what the Chinese wanted to do was, you know, they weren't thinking about being able to access this or that website. They were just thinking about how to understand and translate these Western textbooks and treatises about math and physics and chemistry and, um, you know, Navy or, or typewriting machines. So for them, that translation was also the first entry point to acquiring information. Whereas now I think I completely agree with you, we live in a saturated world of information, right? There's too much of it. We don't <laughs> have to make you know heads or tail with what we read. Yeah. And I think this is why the technology of writing has also played a corresponding role. Because you know we're now trying to use technology to help us manage technology, right? We're trying to use algorithms to help us, you know, distinguish between fake and non-fake news. We're trying to use technology to detect loopholes for us. And I think part of this, you know, it's interesting. You're still talking about print information, right? Yes, even language information, because the idea of having, in order to do that, you need to have a kind of language technology. You need to have the computers being able to discern and to read. Human language on their own, right? In machine language, zeros and ones. So, one of the biggest thresholds that Chinese crossed the century was precisely to digitize itself. But it took a lot of leading up, right from that first chapter of Wang Zhao, phonetic in Chinese, establishing a standard for the modern Chinese language, and then building from there, because then we have what's the next threshold. Boy, like try to type Chinese on a typewriter. Like am yes. looking at my keyboard right now, talking to you, looking down at my keyboard, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really for 26 letters, right? Well, unlike 26, you know, Chinese has thousands of characters. So in fact, the first attempt at building a Chinese typewriter, and I would have to say, it was not by a Chinese. It was actually an American Presbyterian missionary in the yes. late 1800s. His idea of Chinese typewriter was. Oh, then we have to have thousands of keys because one character per key, just like one character per letter in the alphabet. So the first typewriter, if you look at a the picture, there's actually a picture of it in the book. You might. Yes, it. It yes. flat, yes. disk from? I mean, it looks like nothing like the typewriter you you remember or the one that I saw my father use. And it's just completely different into and to. And to operationalize it, you have to kind of like rotate it like the way, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, 80s, 90s club scene where the DJ kind of like, you know, what do they call it, they spin the record. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's like a real kind of like athletic movement, try to coordinate all these different mechanisms, line up the characters, finding it, you know, make sure the levers pulled in the right way so it can be inked onto paper. It took extraordinary coordination. But when the Chinese themselves invented a typewriter, this is the bamboo expert who was also this young engineer at MIT, he figured out a more economic way right. of storing Chinese like roll it up, roll it up into these rolls of you know, cylinders. And so that you, know, you can rotate and pick the characters that you need. But the really big innovation, I think, the main conceptual breakthrough 20th century was that the Chinese figured out and it really just took a shift a, a different mindset. How to break Chinese down into components, as it were, as it, as if it were letters of the alphabet, and to put characters back together, right? So to create China's own ABCs, without yes. alphabet letters.
1: You explained all of that. So incredibly well in your book. And you just mentioned about illustrations. There's some great illustrations in the book. And there's one that I want to point out. Before I go to that, I just want to remind my listeners: if you've just joined us, my guest is Jin Su. Her book is titled Kingdom of Characters: The Language Revolution that Made China Modern. There's one page, and I'm looking for, I'm trying to find it here, where you where the characters are the word chi is being used or or, or the the letters c h i could you explain that to me because i don't know if i can explain it well enough because it's
3: so fascinating i'm so glad you picked that up that would be chapter five yes i talk about okay so that is about the trade-off that chinese had to make by Romanizing itself. So earlier I talked about how, okay, you break Chinese characters down, but there's the other path, which is also, well, you just render Chinese in Roman letters by basically transliterating or transcribing characters. So for instance, my name, Jing, J-I-N-G, there's a whole range of characters that share that exact same spelling in Romanization. And the only way you know which Jing it means in Chinese, which my character means, peace or serenity is that you look at it and you know what tone it is now tone is something very particular right to chinese we have about we have four standard tones and it's the intonation that's a different thing saying yes and yes right two different moves and very two, two different pitches and that's what tones are in chinese and so when you the problem is when you romanize chinese there's no way of Marking tones, because alphabet languages don't use tones.
0: Yes, question
3: so was, you know, Chinese really lost a lot in that process. And that's why I brought up that story, which is basically 92 repetitions of the spelling S-H-I, Shi, right, which sure. actually is my last name, if it were spelled correctly. I'll right. Another time. But, you know, this is a story in Chinese is a very clever story about a man who actually likes to eat lions and he went to the market and he accidentally brought back 10 lions that he thought were you know actual lions but turns out they were made of stone so the, the, the short parables about how he found that out now in chinese this is uses all different characters right the shi that means his last name the shi that means the lion the shi yes. that means the chamber that he took the lions into yes and the shi his his butler so the problem is if you spell it out, you can't tell it all. It just nice. it, it sh- 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 repeated, you know, however many times, you know, as I quote in that paragraph. And that's a remarkable thing because it sounds like gibberish.
0: Yes,
1: but it's it's fascinating, fascinating to see it on the page. It really is. But can you say it in Chinese? Can you just say just a few lines of that paragraph in, in Chinese?
3: Oh, now I have to. Let me see if I can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if I could just say the. The first sentence or two. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness, that is so <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Do you at least hear the pitch difference? Yes, with- of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. 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 See, you see it just SHI, which is the standard spelling for that character. Sh- it just, that just makes complete. It doesn't make any sense, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's another on page page 155, you've got another, do Ding Yu's shape-based character ana- analysis in eight shapes. I love that. Can you, can you just give us a little overview of
3: that? Well, first of all, you just put your finger, that's my favorite character out of the okay. book. Okay, okay. <laughs> calls himself Bismarck Du. He was a yes. curmudgeonly but stylish librarian, right? And he has called himself Bismarck because he wanted to rule the field of library science with an iron fist, right? Yeah. And Du Ding came up with this idea that, you know, he, he, he said in one of his essays, that if you look at Chinese characters, it's got to be a way in which how they looked actually mattered to the ancients. So he looks at these character and he's like, well, you know, if you look at the character for man, it's clearly someone was looking at people from the side and decided to make it into character form. So he was very, very inventive and truly really trying to want to reinvent the wheel in order to see Chinese in a different way. And my favorite character, I mean, the favorite anecdote about him that I like is also um, he looked at the character for ox, right? Where he said, oh, that looks like. That looks like a cow side swiping its tail. And you can see the <laughs> ancient must have been, you know, must have seen it from behind. And in the book, I talk about how there's no bovine derriere that has been more consequential. <laughs> from that, you know, he extrapolates his whole system of, okay, this is how you look at characters. You can actually disassemble them. You use shape, right? You use the shape as a basis for analysis, not sound. So that was very innovative because he stayed true to the shape characteristic of Chinese writing. He didn't just phoneticize it like the alphabet. And with that, he was able to develop a library cataloging system for Chinese.
1: I've got so many questions for you. I th- Thank you once again for explaining things so wonderfully. I, I love this.
3: Wonderful questions. I love it. <laughs> thank them. you. I- thank I thank is- <laughs> you. Um-
1: one of the things that I, I discovered in your book is how important Japan was in the change in the Chinese language. It, 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 can you explain that? Can you talk about that?
3: Yes. Now, Japanese makes several appearances in the book. And the thing is, you know, Japanese use a Chinese writing language system right they used that among three writing systems that they had and in fact they modernized they embraced alphabetization even earlier with, than china and with even greater enthusiasm so when they did that you know they did the first translations or the first you know, um large scale translations of English words and lexicon, especially like you know, um, you know, words that didn't have the equal or easy equivalents in Chinese, but they did that hard work. And so when China was thinking about how to revamp its language and modernizing, one of the things it did was to look at what the Japanese had did had done and said, you know what, we can re-import those characters they used to translate Western lex- you know lexicon. For our own purpose. So they did kind of use Japanese, even so it sort of took this, it's sort of recycled, right? So Chinese characters was you know flowed into floated into Japan as part of its cultural influence in the previous centuries. And now Japanese use that same character system to modernize and translate Western terminology. Then that was like reimported by the Chinese into Chinese terminology. Yes.
1: Yeah. yes.
3: So there is that part, but ultimately. Both countries were oriented towards this bigger, um, more uh, game-changing movement, which was the alphabetization of the, West, the alphabetization of the world, and they yes. were both oriented towards the Western alphabet. So I think even though there's a regional story between China and Japan, I don't want to lose focus on the fact that there was a bigger there was sort of a bigger issue on the horizon for them, which was basically Westernization.
1: Yes, I just want to throw this in is. Vietnamese, the French colonized Vietnam, and they adopted the Roman alphabet, and it's very it's it's very hard to read if you don't have a little bit of practice in it and understand it. I'm I'm wondering how was it possible that the Vietnamese did that and the Chinese didn't follow that example at one point?
3: You know, not at that time, but it's also a little. There's also the history of um, French colonialism in Vietnam. Yes, yes, yes. Came about with French colonialism. And before that, Chinese was actually the lingua franca of the of, region. Yes. By not only Japan, but Korea and, Vien- and Vietnam. Vietnam actually used the compositional and phonetic principles in Chinese characters. Yes. To new characters out of that. So if I look at Chu which is kind sort of the Vietnamese Chinese character. Yeah. It looks, walks and talks like Chinese character to me because the same kind of like square clusters, you know, units, you know, combined together in a modular way. But it's because they use the compositional principles of Chinese. So, you know, so in other words, before Western Alphabet came along, the region was fine with Chinese as-, as Yes, it yes. Franca. It was the ABCs of East Asia. They right. didn't think it was really hard and cumbersome to, to use. It was only until later when 26 letters you know, you know, floated on shore, that they realized, oh, this actually works better for us and works better for a modern world that's actually dominated by alphabetic users.
1: Right. And you, and you make that point in the book so, so wonderfully because really it comes down to money. It, it was much easier to have that, have the language where people could communicate, particularly for trading, for buying and selling. And that's really important. Just going to remind my listeners, I'm talking to Jing Su. Her book is called Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. This is such a good book. It really is.
3: And I love what you said about money and profit. Language also, before the modern time, it was really, you know, languages with strong calligraphic and aesthetic, Arabic and Chinese. You know, it was about beauty, it was about distinction, it was about slow learning. But in the modern era, it can't afford to be like that. So transition language is a tool, is a technology, is utilitarian, right? So therefore you want it to be user-friendly, not so much the aesthetic, you know, the the slow accumulation (laughs) of cultural prestige, it's like, that era has largely left us. Now it's all about quickness, efficiency, and exactitude. Yes.
1: Which now leads me to ask you, and again, this is from reading your book, I was wondering how easy is it for a Chinese person to read and understand and speak English?
3: Uh, well, it's certainly a lot easier than an English speaker trying to learn Chinese. And that is actually kind of in some ways the beauty of English, because the reason that English has been global lingua franca, and it's not just you know because of British colonialism and and American, which actually American influence, which did actually help propel it worldwide, it's really because you know it's also easier, but it's also less, you know, English is also less regular, it's actually very open to adaptation. It doesn't mind when people hybridize it. So, so that's why you have a variety of Singlish, right? Singapore English, India English. Like people speak all kinds of English, including computer programmers. Of the computing programming language, it was origin, originated English milieu. So even this day, you know, with COBOL or other you know, computer language system uh, programming language, you actually have to kind to know a little bit of English to use. So there's also that part. But of course, it's different English and actually being native speaker of English. But nonetheless, it's because of this utilitarian side that English is able to spread far and wide.
1: Quick question for you, because I'm not quite sure whether I, whether I discovered this in your book or not. But in, in the Chinese language, is there such thing as plurals? For instance, if you're talking to a Vietnamese person, I'll give you an example. My son's name is James, and his mother is Vietnamese. And when she asked me, what do you think we should call him? I said, James. And she said to me, that's impossible. I have one son. I don't have many sons, which I think as a Chinese person, you probably understand the humor in that. And and she still to this day takes it very seriously for her. She has one son. Therefore his name is James, not James. James is plural. And so in Chinese, is there, such a, is there such a thing as plural or is everything singular?
3: Uh, so your son's actually named Jane.
1: It, no, no, no. His actually name is James, but, oh, but he's okay. th- his mother thinks it's James.
3: It so there's such a charming, that's the most delightful anecdote I've heard all day. Um, uh, yes. So you can pluralize Chinese, but it's not like England where you just add on a letter. Like Chinese yes. doesn't have declensions, it doesn't conjugate. So you basically add on another character. So if I say I, wo, yes. so if I say we, is actually woman. So the man is actually a pluralization. So I similarly, if I say you, ni, and if I say ni man, that's a pluralization of you. So it has this, it's actually kind of, in some ways, I think it's much easier because you just add character. You do the same thing when you try to express whether an action is taking, whether I'm talking to you now, whether I talked to you yesterday, or I will talk to you tomorrow. Add characters that tell you what the temporal marker is.
0: So, I love it.
1: I'm going to, you've made me even more determined now to learn Chinese. Can you be my, <laughs> you know, you're, you're
3: too busy
0: teaching. You're, you're,
1: you're too busy teaching. Before we go, it's a fascinating book. It, it, obviously it took a lot of time and effort to write this book. You don't have to tell me how long it took, but I'm imagining that it did take some time to put together. But I also wonder when you were writing the book, the ups and downs of writing it, just the the what you put in and what you had to take out or just the editing process of a book that is essentially very complicated in its in its subject matter. So how was that for you? Was it was it problematical to, 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 to put this book together?
3: It was very challenging. And actually, analogy, actually, while I was writing a book in the darkest hour, I can't help but think of an image since I, I spent part of my childhood in California. I was thinking to myself, God, this is really like juicing. It's like 80 pounds of vegetables for that four-ounce of juice yes. at the end. Yes. And the book was really like that. It's really trying to first of all digest and understand, you know, this very complicated process of script revolution. And figuring out how to tell it, the technical, hard aspects of it, explain it to, you know, readers like myself. I mean, I wasn't very technological before this book. And also to, you know, make it, to lighten it with the human characters, which by far, I think was one of the real pleasures of of writing this book was to inhabit the minds of these geniuses, hacks, you know, like, curmudgeoning librarian, grumpy men, you know, and like young (laughs) innovators and people who are aspiring, inspired. And it was really a a tremendous, it was very enlightening for me to be able to live through people's minds that way. Even though as a scholar, you know, I read plenty of literature, but always, you know, yeah, but to turn that off and to really allow the human side to in some ways come out of me and the storytelling side to come out of me in order to be closer to these historical figures that no one really knew about. That was by far the most gratifying part of labor.
1: You are a terrific storyteller and you're a fabulous guest. I really have had a great, uh, great time talking to you. We could go on and talk about this for hours because there's so much to learn and discover in the book. The book is called Kingdom of Characters, the Language Revolution that Made China Modern. That subtitle is very important. Jing Su has been my guest. It has been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere.
3: Thank you, Norman. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me.
1: Big thank you to my guests and a very large thank you to you for listening. Now, make sure you let me know your opinion of Life Elsewhere. My email address comes up in the closing credits. Till next time, please be well, be safe, and you know, it's always worth it. Be nice. Bye-bye.
0: You have been listening to Life Elsewhere. Created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at co. That's C-O.